This is the Diverse Leaders Conversation Podcast. The only podcast for diverse leaders and founders with your hosts, Dawn Morton-Young and Kat Wildman. Starting up and rising up against the odds. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Diverse Leaders Conversation Podcast. I'm Kat Wildman. And I'm Dawn Morton-Young. And today we are joined by the amazing Kevin Withane. Now, Kevin, will you please introduce yourself for everybody, because I will never do you justice. Uh, Kat, Dawn, thank you for having me on. Uh, So I'm Kevin Withane. I'm the founder and co-managing partner of Diversity X. Um, I'm also, I have a, I guess, a full-time day job as a corporate lawyer in a FTSE 250. So I'm juggling quite a few things. Um, So that's who I am. Uh, I actually, I think I'm more of a recovering lawyer is how I describe myself. So I'm reconnected (laughs) with my soul. A recovering lawyer who is still practicing. That's pretty much it. Yeah, so I think you, that's you're who I kind am. of coming at this as somebody that is, um, on one hand, uh, a leader within your corporate role, and then on the other hand, a founder. And obviously, as you know, this podcast is about both of those groups. So it's really good to have um, somebody that sort of brings both of those things together on with us. And I'm really excited, actually, to tell us what Diversity X is, um, because I think that's something that people would really be interested to hear about. Yeah, so Diversity X, I guess, is a couple of things. But first and foremost, and always, it's a community for what I call underestimated founders. Most people will use the term underrepresented. I think they're wrong and I think I'm right. Uh, and the reason is there's plenty of female founders, people of colour founders, LGBTQ plus founders, disabled founders, neurodiverse founders, older founders, plenty of them. What there is underrepresentation is, though, is the equitable allocation of capital. And data shows that this category of founders is just deeply underfunded. Um, and probably we're looking at single digit funding in VC world. Okay. So what does your community seek to kind of address? Um, I think as a community, it's, for me, the most important part of it is it being a safe space for underestimated founders. I think they, the founders in the community probably receive higher rates of rejection, no feedback, almost ghosting, um, have stress and mental uh, health issues that don't get addressed, like they don't have the support network. Um, So it's a peer-to-peer support group, um, but we are over 300 and something founders in there, and global. So in some senses, it's it's a great way to have founders from around the world sharing their stories, their pain, their journey, their wins, their celebrations, um, and learning and supporting each other. So I'd say it's a, the safe space is one of the most important things. Like you can't link, use LinkedIn and go, we lost the business win today, or we did that, like, because potentially for those founders, investors are there. Um, 
So they need that space. Um, but also it's a place to go, look, I'd really love to be nominated for this award. Can anybody support me? And, you know, when we had the Watts group, it was like, done, 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 pinging all day long. Um, so I think that's really positive because actually all these founders need people to champion them and sponsor them and support them. And, and the connections between them is just, I think it's incredible, incredible. Um, so yeah, safe space firstly, and I guess a place to learn, share, collaborate, all of that good stuff, which you should get from a community and ultimately advocate for underestimated. Yeah. And Kat and I are both, um, members of the diversity X community, and we've been there since the ping in WhatsApp group days. And it's obviously evolved now, um, and can really see the benefit and everything that you've kind of just outlined are things that, you know, we want to also through this podcast bring to the fore. It's those kind of stories. It's those kind of things. So that other founders from diverse groups or, or backgrounds know that they're not alone, that it's not just them that are going through these things or facing these barriers or, or issues or, you know, um, and so, yeah, it's a great community. So thanks so much for um, coming on, Kevin. Um, first thing I want you to just ask you, what would you I guess, what would you identify in terms of your diversity? Um, I never really used to think about this, but it used to frustrate me on the forms. Uh, like you've got a job application or any of these forms and it'd always have a colour. I was like, I never really see myself as this, uh, like I see myself as English, mm. but it was British Asian, not English. Like, why can't I be English? I was born and bred here, um, went to school here, educated here, got my first jobs here. Uh, and there's no such thing as a second generation immigrant, right? You're either an immigrant or you're not an immigrant. If you're born here, you can't be an immigrant. Um, so I'd describe myself as English, but, you know, if you look at what other people will <coughs> look at it, they'll say British English. Uh, oh, sorry, British Asian. Uh, so I guess my diversity is I'm a brown guy. Um, my, my mum's from the Caribbean, Trinidad and Tobago, uh, and my dad's from, um, Sri Lanka, but they found their respective ways here, I guess, as children of the colonies. Um, and they met here and me and my brother were born here. So yeah, I guess a male <laughs> as well. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's, I guess, my diversity. Yeah. That, that's what it and is. I, I think that, and you're a parent. Oh, yes, you're a parent, yes. I am a parent. Yeah, I love being a parent. <laughs> I, actually, no, let me take that back. I absolutely love being a parent, but there are times when you want to put your head in a pillow and just scream. I think we've all, <laughs> I think we've all had that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would say this, though. Um, COVID as terrible as that been for like certain dads certainly for me like you truly learn what mums do in the house and I'm not saying not every household is like that but I would say statistically and generally uh, women do the lion's share and then add in a few other animal share of the load um, it is so difficult. Like I cancelled a couple of calls this morning because I was watching Mali 
Whereas I see plenty of women turn up to their jobs with their kids in the background and just get the job done. Uh, so yeah. Um, but throughout COVID and, and now being at home, like working from home, like you learn the lessons that you just didn't like, I didn't see, I didn't see it. So I don't, I don't think I fully appreciated just how intense true parenting is. Yeah, that's amazing. That was an amazing observation. Uh, also, I think um, you you probably, I mean, well, I don't know. I'm going to ask you, would you go back to what, the way things were before? There's probably moments, I know with my husband, there's moments where he wishes he could walk out the door at 7 and come home at 7.30 after having maybe had a few client drinks, long lunch, you know, come back and everything's sorted and the kids are in bed. <laughs> and But now it's like, mm, now you've seen it, husband, you can't unsee it. So would you go back to the way things were before or or do you think largely it's been more positive changes? For me personally, positive. Like, I absolutely love it. For Claire, though, she's funny. Like, she will say, you know, you get your home, but you go into your office early and you come out later. Like, you know, you'd, you'd be you seem to be around more but i think that but like i get to go and drop my kid to school i get to pick him up um i used to do to be fair i used to do that with my daughter when we lived in asia um but i love it like i want to know i want to have those little conversations that you have on the way to school on the way back from school to see them smiling as they running out of school when they that moment where they catch your eye and then realize that you're there you're there it's lovely so I, I wouldn't change that and also just like with Mally being around and just seeing all the little stuff that he does <laughs> and destroys um uh it's, it is it I wouldn't swap it no I couldn't I couldn't ever swap I that. think that's, um, that's brilliant no I wouldn't such either. a uh, uh I don't know, lovely perception of things because you putting it into those words makes me think about my own experience because I think sometimes as mums, because we are doing, we're just doing, we don't necessarily always capture those moments. So for example, that you said when they catch your eye, when they're coming out of school and they smile and run to you, because it becomes such a routine, it's just kind of like, come on, we've got to get dinner done. That's kind of, what's the next thing? That's what we're thinking about. But you sort of stripping it back like that from another perspective, it is, you know, it makes us realise, I guess, how, how more makes me realise how, how blessed, I guess, we are as parents um, and as mums as well. So this was um, clearly the, the soppy yeah. part of our conversation today. <laughs> we don't normally talk about nice soppy things on this show, do we, Kat? It's normally like hard-eating. No. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's a hardness to this too, right? Because remember Claire telling me about, um, like she went to the park with Jude and a couple of parents are talking about their kids and, you know, it's like, well, of course, like we, we help them read and, of course, like it wouldn't be a thing that it wouldn't. I'm surprised that parents don't. I'm like, like we're so privileged that we have the time, energy, and capacity to be able to sit there and just read with our child. Like he's got a re like both the boys got like a what's the word Claire uses mm. reading rich environment. And then I think about other kids, and then it's not. They've got amazing parents, but it might be a single parent. Just amazing. 
but they have to work jobs to keep the lights on, to keep their kids warm and put food. It might not even be warm food, it's just food on the table for the, and it's literally survival. And they're doing two, three jobs and they just don't have the energy. Yeah, exactly. They don't have yeah. the energy. It doesn't mean they're a bad parent, Yeah, but they get stigmatised in our society. Yeah, because like, yeah, that's when you're, yeah. we're now talking about yeah. that whole socioeconomic uh, diversity, for want of a better expression, and the opportunities that even I would say that, as you've rightly said, Kevin, that we may be able to afford to our, our children. But I as well will notice the difference because I am that single parent who doesn't always have the time to do things. My, my daughter's school's closed because their heating's not working. Um, and so she's upstairs and I had, I was coming on to do this, this call today. Um, and I had another meeting before that and I've had to say, Oh, you have to go and do this and wait until I finished and then I'll come and, you know, and so not having those, um, I guess that support available in the home but there are lot thousands of children who have that situation you know much worse than that in terms of um yeah. yeah and i think it's something that is not really addressed or spoken about so for example somebody that works say within your law firm let's just say a company and there is a a single parent could be a male, could be a female that was working in your organization, even with all of the well-being things that they have that's available for people, there isn't things, much things that are targeted to single parents or targeted to people who may be on basic administrative jobs or roles and not earning, not one of the high earners. And how is it that they survive within their household? you know, what's going on for them from a mental capacity space from, you know, all of that type of thing. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And you like think of like putting in that work context, you know, most managers like a direct manager, like may think about it if you're lucky. And then you've probably got a decent manager who thinks about, well, how, what is the life? What is my team members, my colleagues life? like like what can we do as an organization to make it better so that they're happier healthier and their well-being is taken care of but also mm. they'll deliver more like they they deliver they tend to deliver more but i think as you move up the chain and you're further removed from the individuals that conversation yeah. becomes less and less it is it's con conversations on productivity, but not what drives productivity. Because we're at that level, you're mm. expected to just kind of suck it up because your your role almost becomes bigger than that. But I do think going back to the COVID conversation, that COVID again became a bit of a mirror for people at all levels to see really our humanity and that things happen. We had, you know, Zoom conversations with kids running around in the background and, you know, um, people that unfortunately had loved ones that passed away and 
managers were becoming much closer to that because that was happening no matter where you stood. It didn't matter how much money you earned. It didn't matter what your grade was. Those things affected everyone. And so I do think that we're in a better position now. Um, And certainly I am seeing more kinds of humanitarian actions towards employees by um, companies, which I think is, is really encouraging. Yeah, it is. I think a lot of companies still struggle, though, particularly right now is really difficult time. You know, it's for, for the most part, it is, it's not the company's fault. Right? Like it's these macroeconomic geopolitical issues that are driving things, but making basically the global business and environment just difficult. But we live in a world of short termism from from a, you know, everybody needs to be incentivized to do the right thing. I find that ridiculous, but it's the but it seems to be true. Um, I hate it, but it's true. Like we have to incentivize to do the right thing. What's in it for it for me? Like it's always about what's in it for me. I, I don't get it, but we need that. But when you look at organisations, everybody's incentivized on short term basis, so short term results. We're not nobody's ever looked at like well, if you achieve this in ten years time, it's like one year two-year or three-year cycles like and particularly at the top levels so then it's like well where do we like where do we as lead and i i get that paradigm that that difficult issue of i've got to deliver this to be to get my just rewards but this other stuff i'm not going to see any benefits from i may not even be here by the time the benefits come through so I'm just going to focus on this because I can see, I can measure it, and I can deal with it. And that's, I think, a huge part of the problem. Um, and I don't know what the magic answer to that is because otherwise I'd be minted. Um, uh, but And I, I don't think there is a single answer because I think every organisation is like a living organism. It's, it's unique. Uh, you can't replicate one organization to another because ultimately that organization is built on people and every single person that comes in is a different person is a you, even if like you know we're hiring the same people over and over and over from a diversity angle but it's still your organization will be different because the way people interact with each other is different you see and that's why i always look at culture like um like a waves on a sea it changes all the time as new ones, new people come in or it can change oh, the dynamic no, completely. Sorry to you see, um, interrupt you there, but that micro. was exactly what I was just thinking was around. This is about global culture. And it's almost like what would make a change would be the biggest culture change project known to man, where you're actually shaping the culture of countries rather than it being about companies um because as much as the business world is there it's still the governments and the society that drives the culture of a place um and so it's it's almost that way around but whether we'd ever get there i'm I'm sure i saw something um dubai were hiring like a culture change person for the company they wanted to showcase Dubai as being I've forgotten what it was I remember looking at it thinking okay this is like a little bit innovative isn't it <laughs> so I I think there are com- company countries 
doing that at governmental level. But everybody like, but then you look at the com- like here, like we've had how many reviews? And what was his name? Sewell. Sewell. Yeah. Sewell. Sewell's right. Like it didn't take any account of lived experience. It's like, oh, we're not. It's almost like, well, we're doing this to, as a defense mechanism. Yeah. It's like, why? Look, we don't need to defend anything. We know what's happened. We don't have to hide from it. It's not about defending anything and like saying, well, you know, sorry, guys. Like it's about let's, how do we move forward to make a, the world more equitable, fair and equal for everybody and just treating people like another human being. Like how would you, you know, I'm not a religious person, but doesn't, doesn't the Bible say something like about treating your neighbor, how you would want to be treated. I I don't know the exact words. Um, Well, but do we do that? Really? Like, do we do that? I don't know. Goodness. Do you know what? If we did do that, we wouldn't need diversity and inclusion businesses because everything would be fine. But do you know what? That is the conclusion. We've got an ambassador certification, and that's a con- that's a conclusion that everybody comes to at the end, which is when they send their reflections. You know, just don't assume that everyone on a particular group is the same, and and give everybody the respect to be different and be who they are. And that's been a real revelation. That's that's what's coming out of it. It's like, you know, these are human beings. Like, you cannot look at a human being and presume to know anything about them at all, really, you know, when you think about it. So on that topic, Kevin, uh, you described yourself as a brown guy. <laughs> um, what Have you found any benefits or barriers because of your appearance? in in the working world uh both um i think from my gender perspective i'm privileged deeply um yeah you don't think about it right but then you come to realize your privilege uh from my color perspective you know what i don't even think i realized what i knew i had experienced racism but i didn't treat it as racism because I'd never been physically hurt. It was only till it's only when George Floyd happened and we were living in Detroit at the time. So we could hear the helicopters and we're sitting in bed. With my, my wife who's white we're sitting in there and we're watching Twitter and stuff like that. And all I see is police cars ramming people, um, black people, white people. It didn't really matter. People just done with the way it was. And that triggered something in me to reflect on my what's happened to me. And it was only at that point it was like, shit, that was like, it was racism. I just didn't call it out as that, but it was, you know, because I always just, in my head, I think, I thought, um, I haven't been physically hurt. I haven't been harmed physically. It's all right. Um, this is just what it is to be a brown guy, you know. You got the P word all the time when I was growing up, shouted from the buses, you know, in North London. And um, I guess, you know, Enfield at that time was um, in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, was still pretty white and not as diverse as it is now. And, you know, we're just down the road from Edmonton and Tottenham. Um, but it was, it's, it was quite, I guess, a conservative area um it's much more diverse now you walk around there and it, it is a truly a cosmopolitan 
like a, it's a microcosm of of the whole of greater london in a sense like it is really like full of different things and one of the best things about it is that's food because you've got all of this diversity of food it's incredible you don't have to leave the country really you could just pretty much go around the world just eating around london um but i would say so whilst i experienced that i would say in the world of work um because i don't think i i think Asian kids, South Asian kids probably had it worse racism than the, maybe the black kids did. But in the world of work, I think it's completely different. Um, I think you're treated differently. And so we, you know, um, we were treated differently to the like black employees. And I would hear racism directed at black employees, but not me. Now, my wife would say, I've been in the room when you people like you've left mm. and I hear what they say when you're gone. I've heard what they say when you've gone, like not talking about me personally, yeah. but like she's been in that situation before. Um, so, you know, it's a real difference. And actually funny enough, when I was coming back uh, talking to a friend in the U S South Asian as well, he's like, Kev, why are you going to go back? And like, we had these conversations about racism uh, a lot i said because you know i don't have a voice here um, at least i can vote in that country i'm never gonna like i never want to be an american citizen um i never want to have that passport i never want to call myself an american I have to be a guest there so i'd rather leave and he said but you know like it's going to be worse for you there because that was his perception like he was treated he obviously experienced rate mm. or saw racism here um, which in the US you see less of as a South Asian. What we experienced there was the uh, hatred of mean and mixed race family. That, another, you know, and then it's another yeah. level of old and mingling. Like my, I never, to be honest, I'm a, I walk around like with these rose tinted glasses. I try and I'm, I'm like a what do you call it? an optimist. Uh -huh. Uh, I like to see, try and find the positives in everything. And there is generally for most parts, I can always try and find one little thing, but my wife would notice it. She said, you know, we're being stared at. I, like, I, don't, I don't see it all the time, but she's like, we get looked at all the time. Uh, and I was like, oh, okay. You know, that that's hard. Like now it's affected. Like she's, I guess, experiencing what that's like. Yeah. Um, I think that there's there's so many things there because when you refer to yourself or you would identify as being English, so I was always taught growing up, whether this be right or wrong, that I am black British and I'm black British because I'm only in this country by virtue of British colonialism. So the, the reason that I was able to be born here, the reason that my parents were able to come here was because of being part of the British Empire, not being an English person. And English, the identification of English f for me was always a white person born within England. Um, and I think that's that's just what I how I've already always carried my identity. And if you ask me further, I'm black British Caribbean, or I will say, you know, British Caribbean. 
you know, something along those lines. But then we've got the difference of race and ethnicity intermingling in that as well. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so I, I did find that interesting. I don't know. That's just what I was, was told. And it kind of made sense to me. <laughs> um, yeah. No, that's, that's what I was told. But I'd be like, no, like, if you look at in France, there's black French people there. We don't hear them going, mm. the black French people, which is the French, right? Yeah. Thierry yeah. Henry. Every, everybody loves Thierry Henry, right? It's just French dude. Like, he's a French guy. Uh, just like his mate Bobby. Uh, you know, even, I know in America there's like a... Uh, well, they use the term mm. African-American, which I think is deeply uh, wrong as well. Like, at the end of the day, like, that's a country of just immigrants, Unless you, unless you're direct lineage to to the natives, uh, yeah. you're all immigrants there. Uh, the country, but you call yourselves yeah. American. Yeah, they will say they're, but like, yeah, but most black people will say African American because they came directly from Africa to America. So whereas we came, yeah, that's where where they yeah. would say African Caribbean is for those that came from Africa and went to the Caribbean. So I've, I I think that's kind of where it comes from. And I guess it gives them their sense of identity. But what I think as well was interesting is, um, you know, where you said, you know, you just see yourself as you. You don't, you know, because you're not putting these labels on yourself, um, other people's, you're kind of surprised by other people's labels. Like sometimes you don't notice it. And that's where your wife, who's coming from, I guess, the majority is noticing those things. Um, yeah. So I guess it's just kind of, regardless of how we see ourselves. And I, I, I'm, I'm, assume, I'm going to assume that people from the transgender community will feel the same way, that regardless of how we see ourselves, people are always going to have their label for us. Um, and so I guess it's about how, And you, you're you're an example of this about how rooted we can be in our own beliefs about ourselves, so that it doesn't matter. And I think that that's what you've kind of been able to achieve, really. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think though, um, you know, when I, I sort of use that term "recovering lawyer," but that sort of reflects that is that I try to be like everybody else. I tried to, and everybody else mm. was the white people, like coattailing them, hanging out for no, you know what? Like, wife was, we were talking about one person in particular. She, my wife would be like, you know, you always used to like get annoyed when I say, call that person out for what they are. And you say, oh, they're a really good person. But now you recognize that they're not a good person. I was like, yeah. I know, but you know, I was trying to trying to get ahead, I guess, um, because all my life, like, I use that term underestimated as well. But I've had the same thing at school, director of sixth form. With aim, what do you want to be? What do you want to? What are you going to study at university? Law, sir. <laughs> Laughed and literally said, "You'll no never way. be a lawyer." Turns out that my law career was probably longer than his teaching career. So he got fired for being an alcoholic. Have you sent him like a card um, <laughs> with your like credentials on? <laughs> no, I wouldn't know where to find him. But <laughs> yeah, it don't, 
but that drove i guess it drove me but then you know in the same thing like going through like i trained to be a barrister i was at doing a bar course and i got um like interview i got some interviews and like someone said to me kevin you know you're the token there they literally said you're the token like they have to quota and um, the chambers that you're you've got interviews for and you're probably a token to to so they can say well we we actually interview x people right i was like no 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 <laughs> literally even in the interview in a waiting room another uh about like student barrister at the time i guess said oh like uh, you're here for to, so they can tip you want to tick the box candidate oh. just like fuck it but nice. uh, all right and lo and behold they're probably right uh I, i'd like to say i performed badly so I, I used to say that as oh, was me like i was just wasn't a good enough candidate but you know what i think i was a good candidate i just was wrong color uh you know um it is what it is is it, is it also um because uh, i guess the rumor that we've heard about those sort of the upper echelons of the, the the legal society. It's also around what university did you go to and who are your family, how much money do they have, that type of thing. So, you know, maybe if your surname was Sunak, <laughs> you may have um, found that you passed the bar because perhaps your, you know, your background. I don't, I know nothing about your background, but perhaps your background may have been different. Do you think that that could have played a part, or not in your case? Uh. Yeah, I mean, if you look at where, I think I think there's been a huge change over the last twenty years at the bar. But where are the black judges? Where are they? Come on, we have a problem. Like, there's a lot around yeah. socio-economics, but you know what? If you're going to sit, you need a judiciary that's representative of the people, just like you need a government that representative of the people the judiciary is a check and a balance they should be representative but is it no mm-hmm. and i know a really 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 great criminal barrister who applies and doesn't get an opportunity there's so few do to be king's king's counsel and you're like how is this possible and so when you think where the judges are going to be chosen from, they're going to be chosen from that, the top level of barristers. They're not there and they're not doing it. You need like, but also like I, I'd ask people, lawyers who wanted to work, like deliver legal services. It's like, I'd say to them, draw, draw three mile radius around your lovely shiny office and go out to the public, like the, the state schools in those areas because you know within every within three miles of every shiny Mm. offices there's a ton of poverty um go into those schools on careers day or something and talk to the kids i know you don't have a reason to go there because you don't have a kid there doesn't matter you go and give those kids the opportunity to dream and hope that they can work in your nice shiny offices because the chances are the lawyers that they hear about are probably criminal or family general or personal injury, right? That's it. They don't know that they could work in that big shiny building and doing a job. That's your job. Not like a janitor or office, other clerical worker or, but being a lawyer, 
given that hope that they can do that. Now, the entry price is the entry price, academic rigor. But if they have the hope that they can get there, and if you make it possible that they can get there, they'll get there because they want it. But we need more people doing that. We need we need those law firms to take, you know, and there are some, like I, was, I, I talked about this initiative, a law firm here, and they said, oh, we're doing some stuff, like we're getting out. And I said, like, you have to be proactive. You can't wait for people to come to you. You've got, they don't even know where to go. Mm. Like, you need to go to them. And that's yeah. it. Like, more needs to be done. The socioeconomic divide in this country is sadly only going to get worse if the government don't, or if they keep cutting schools off at the knees, because there is just absolutely no funding available for anything. And it's relying on the socioeconomic status of the parents of the kids who go there to support the schools. And if you're in a low socioeconomic area, they're going to they're gonna massively suffer. What can we do, Kevin? I don't know, but what's ridiculous? Well, look at the Scandinavian countries. Now, I'm not saying they're an epitome of uh, great um, diversity or anything, but from an educational point of view, they they invest. They have been investing a lot, and now they're starting to see the rewards of that yeah. in the generations that's coming through. My, Claire, my wife said to me, she's like, "I can't believe some of this stuff that's happening." I thought we were supposed to be one of the richest countries in the world. Same with the United States. That country, they profess to be the greatest nation on earth. Like, they all shout it about it. To, I kid you not, getting an Uber or a Lyft there, who are my drivers? Mm. Teachers. Why are you doing this? Well, we don't, we don't get paid during the holidays, like we're on these fixed term. Oh, and they, and they were telling it like, you go into Target, they've got aisles full of teaching resources. What? Target? Why? Why? Like, it's like going to Asda. Why would you have all the teaching resources in Asda? Like, surely the schools just get it. Oh, no, the teachers pay for it. So what that means is, if your teacher is wealthy and has money, your classroom is likely to have better resources what? than if your teacher make any sense. is poorer. Exactly. They don't invest in it. But that's a country that, with the size of its population, with the resources it has, should be throwing all the money. Because if they lift all of those people give them all solid um 100%. grounded education they will lift mm. their entire country and they will live up to their reputation as or not their, their reputation their self-professed yeah. um uh shout out that they're the greatest nation in the world because they've got all the resources they've got the people and if you've got that the people in a productivity, they are educated that, and also got that mindset to like want to continue learning. It will drive them in a way that nobody would be able to catch up. You look mm -hmm. at the Scandinavian countries; they invest, they, they spend a ton of money on education, and they tax high for it. So people are like, oh, it's a socialist. Well, no, it's actually really smart thinking because actually building their future. It's those people who are going to work, particularly as we've got an aging population mm -hmm. now. Who's going to pay for all of the people? Like we need people doing the jobs and earning enough because actually if you're not earning enough, then the coffers are just going to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, but we've got a bigger population to fund. Oh my Don't, goodness. Kevin you know. for prime minister. When's it happening, Kevin? 
Yeah, I think I that, love, I, I think I love the Prime Minister called Ken. Not, it's not an honourable role now. Do you know what I mean? You'd have, I think to, no, you'd have to just come to, back like, and make it, it honourable, Kevin. <laughs> Prime Minister with aim. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, I love it. I, I think there should. It's long overdue that we've had a, we've not had a Prime Minister called Kevin. What a strong and solid <laughs> name for a strong and solid <laughs> leader of a country. I would love that. And can we, yeah, can we be your... That. Can we be in your cabinet? I'd love that. We'll change the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can do it in other ways. We just need to. I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? Like government, particularly this government looks back, you know, honestly, like I've grown up in the eighties and like late seventies, eighties and nineties in this country. I don't remember this many food. They didn't exist when I was growing like, up. I don't even remember, yeah. Like, I remember hearing about, like, the butter mountains that they talked about with being in the EU. Do you remember all of that stuff? Like, oh, because, of, you know, the, the farmers were overproducing because they were getting subsidi- subsidies. Okay, fine. But this, this is insane. And it's like, why? Like, we have this debate in our house. Like, why aren't the government doing anything? It's like, my wife just says, because they don't have to, because they know that people are doing it. Because we've got these food banks. We've got all of this. So they, they don't need to put, do anything. Because we I do see- adverts charity adverts for something to do with poverty food clothing i literally look at it and i say where is the government where are these people that we pay millions of pounds to collectively to keep us and our country safe and well and the and and when the answer then comes back that they don't have the money, I say, but then where has the money come from for now I'm hearing MPs can put on um, their expenses, their Christmas parties and the wars that they're have, you know, helping people with in other countries and all of these things that they're doing, bailing out the banks for the millionth time, all of these things that they have the money to be able to do, why can they not make sure i was driving through central london yesterday and i saw the people lined up on the side of the road with tents sleeping on the side of the road like a a long and so somebody's gone out and given these people tents to sleep in probably a charity and i'm just sitting there there's so many abandoned buildings across london loads of empty properties loads of empty houses i do not understand and i i get that it's not just about some of these people having somewhere to stay and some of it is a psychological mental health things things that have gone on which some of them refuse housing i i understand that but whether it's counseling and therapy services whether it's housing whether it's food make it all or companionship there is something that this government can be doing to help stop this the 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 problem that's being had at the moment and um you know i'm just i'm watching people i'm hearing people all the time telling me that they're not turning on the heating because they're so worried about the gas prices Um, you know we're talking about the elderly and you know the, the elderly are would rather risk killing themselves essentially through hyperthermia than being in debt to the gas and the energy companies and and that for me is it's insanity it's insanity that we would allow this to happen I think that it's going all yeah. the way back to Kevin's original point about the short-termism of everybody because every leader who comes in, they're looking at, right, I've got four years 
in order to be a hero and retire from this having been, you know, short-term gains. Like, look at our GDP going up. Look at this. Look at this. They're not things like, you know, the systemic changes that would be needed in order to, like, put in proper supports to the people who need it. You know, we need to treat the cause and not the symptoms. And this whole dreadful cycle of people being born into poverty and carrying on and all the things that go along with that, you know, and, like, one in however many will make it out of poverty and get to uh, uh, and then they're lauded and and it's a great series it's a great book and it's a tv show but that is the, the reason why we all know about that one person that's that those two people who made it out is because it's so completely unusual because you know they can get the government can get away with not doing anything keep the poor down and but no um we have come to the end of our time and I'm sad about it. Yeah, I want to carry on like, talking. Oh, I could carry on Kevin's talking. Kevin's got to be on our round table. See you forever, but. He's got to be on our round Definitely. table. Oh, yeah, we're going to have. We have. We're going to have. I think in our year anniversary, cat, we'll have like. We're going to have like a little panel discussion, and it will probably be like a 90 minute episode, and we'll just put the world to rights and talk about the great yeah. things that we're doing. Yeah, sure. Uh, before you go, that. though, Kevin, I would like to ask, obviously, as you said, you're a man with uh, loads of experiences from all different kind of um, dynamics. So what advice would you give to somebody else that's maybe, uh, let's say the younger you, the 16 year old you, the 21 year old you, what would you what advice would you give to them as coming up as a founder and also um, looking to be a leader? Um, I'd say don't lose sight of who you are because for any reason at all, um, because you'll get pulled. And like I did, like the stuff I saw, I didn't stand up for people. I didn't, I should have in hindsight, I should have, but I didn't. Uh, and then I tried to be like people I'm, I'm just not like, um, and what for money? like that little extra bit, but it doesn't get you everything. And you only, I realized that now in the forties, cheapest, it's <laughs> a lifetime in some senses. Uh, so I'd say peel back the onion, learn, learn who you are. And that's in some senses as a 16 year old or an 18 year old, that's really hard because you still have to find yourself, but there's a core of people and it doesn't change. And you know, you know, even if you're in hard circumstances and you have to do some stuff because you're in those hard circumstances, be good. Like think about other people and the effects that you have on other people. Stay true to yourself and use that as your guiding anchor. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah. It was great. Kat, any closing remarks for today? Um, I think you're very wise, Kevin. I would uh, that would be exactly the same advice that I would give to my younger self as well. But I do think that we needed to go on those journeys of self discovery um, in order to get to be the people we are and atone for the things we did in the past. You know, um, I think that's a lot of why we all do what we do because you know you look back and you think I don't want anyone to go through what I went through, and you know. So yeah, very good, awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Kevin, and we will see you at the round table. Yeah. For sure. And thank you for having me on. Thank it's been you a real so pleasure much. Bye. You